Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I hope everybody is doing well. Today we're talking all about hypertension and I have an interesting discussion with Professor Adrian Brady from Glasgow Royal Infirmary in Scotland, all about the new NICE guidelines on high blood pressure and how they compare to both the European and the American guidelines. And we have a wide ranging discussion talking about the issue of when to start treatment, lifestyle measures, ongoing trials, all kinds of other things, including dementia risk, treatment of hypertension in the very elderly. I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please do leave us a like and subscribe and all that good stuff as it really helps us to reach new listeners. Thanks so much uh, for joining me today, Adrian, on the Heart Podcast. I really wanted to get you on to chat about the new NICE guidelines for hypertension and how they are similar and different to those in the US and Europe. But before we start, maybe I could have you introduce yourself. Who are you? Where do you work? And what do you do there? James, thank you very much. And it's a real privilege and an honor to be asked to contribute to this series of podcasts uh, to talk about high blood pressure, which, of course, is the largest and most important risk factor, but often slightly overlooked by, by many cardiologists. This is maybe a chance to put this in its context. Yeah, I'm a consultant cardiologist and honorary professor of cardiology here at Glasgow Royal Infirmary and the University of Glasgow. And I'm the past president of the British and Irish Hypertension Society and a past contributing author to the NICE Hypertension Guideline and to the SIGN Guideline in Scotland, to the Irish Guideline, an author of the European guidelines, and I was invited to review the American current guideline of hypertension. So a long spent over the last few years doing hypertension guidelines and research in high blood pressure. So it's a great pleasure to try and share some of this with uh, with the audience today. So thank you very much for asking me. No, it's lovely to have you on. And maybe we can set some background to the paper. Why did you think this review paper was, uh, was timely? Yeah, I think it's important because there are a number of guidelines were in the world. And the principal ones, as far as we're concerned, in Britain and the UK and in sort of the Western world are the, the NICE guidance for hypertension and the European Society of Cardiology, stroke ESH, which is European Society of Hypertension guideline. And then, of course, the American guideline uh, from the AHA, ACC. And so those are the three like dominant guidelines based on very rigorous assessment of the available data from which the guidelines are drawn. But I think there are also important differences the way guidelines are written because NICE tends to write a guideline from exact evidence from um, ideally meta-analysis of, of controlled trials, which is what all the guideline authors do. But sometimes if there's an area, for example, hypertension in the very old or the older old, where there isn't data, then guidance may need to be given in the absence of data. And different and guidance differ on this, whether they will or will not offer a guidance without data. And that's an important point which I think we'll come back to. But really the, the point to, to uh, for writing this paper, the, the review of NICE versus or in comparison to ESC, AHA, and I'll use these abbreviations throughout, yeah. was really to examine the differences between them. Now, broadly speaking, the guidelines are more similar than they are different because everybody has the same data. The big difference between the three guidelines ourselves in, the, in England, Wales, and, and really Scotland as well, because NICE, although it's not written for Scotland, does apply here, um, was how a trial which came out uh, about five years or six years ago affected our decision-making for high blood pressure. This trial was called the SPRINT trial. It was conducted by Paul Welton in the USA. It was a very large American trial where they conducted a study on that was more powerful blood pressure lowering to really normal levels 
did that have a better outcome than reasonably good control? So that was a question that was in Sprint, was, was tight control better than average or usual care? And what they showed in that trial was a, a substantial benefit in total mortality, cardiovascular events, stroke, and in fact, in, in probably onset of dementia, which is, is an emerging area, with tighter blood pressure controls. So this data was taken on uh, full on, certainly by the American guideline, first of all, because Paul, who chaired the trial, also chaired the American guideline. And so some might say that was a conflict of interest. I think it's a very good use of the available expertise. And Paul Welton is, is a giant in hypertension. Now, the ESC, in their re most recent rewritings, they took this on board as well and so really have implemented in their own guideline the target of blood pressure, broadly speaking, less than 130 over 80 millimetres of mercury. Now, here in the UK, NICE has targeted 140-90, and there was much discussion. I know it's during the NICE uh, planning for the, their most recent hypertension guideline. It was considered that the methodology in SPRINT which where patients were in isolated rooms with very careful calibration of machines. Now, this wasn't comparable to UK practice. And so the data from Sprint wasn't really taken on board as much in the UK, the NICE authors, as it was in Europe and in the USA. And so this really prompted in a way the importance of writing a paper to show the differences and the similarities between guidelines. Brilliant. And so we started to look at the guidelines themselves. In a way, the diagnosis of high blood pressure, that's fairly similar. There's slightly different targets. If you just allow me to pull up in my other screen here where we set the, uh, the levels of defining blood pressure um, in the UK, that is uh, blood pressure, broadly speaking, above 140, 90. And that's the same as Europe. Okay. America sets a tougher target in that they list anybody with, with sustained high blood pressure above 130, 80 as being in need of certainly perhaps non-pharmacological therapy and a view towards heading to drug therapy at some point. Because I think one of the brutal truths of high blood pressure is that when it starts to emerge in an individual, it will usually progress into what we would call hypertension or sustained high blood pressure. And we can, can weave and try and avoid it. For many people who have the complex genetics about which we know little to develop hypertension, it's going to get them unless they can get themselves to almost starvation levels of thinness. We maybe come back to weight loss later on. Yeah, I was going to jump in actually and just ask you, um, I think all three of the guidelines do suggest lifestyle modifications uh, alongside, as you say, normally requiring pharmacological therapy. And they talk about weight loss, alcohol reduction, etc. Uh, is it important to emphasize all of those elements on the patients that you treat? Or is the one that you think is, is a sort of dominant thing that patients should try and go for? Yeah, I think, James, that's a great question, is that what can people do to lower blood pressure without necessarily taking pills? And as you say, weight loss, we've known this for 20-odd years since the studies from Colditz and the Women's Heart Study in the US, that you lose a kilogram, then your blood pressure falls by about 1.5 millimetres. And so you get more than one for one. And so I always tell that patients, many of whom are a bit overweight, so that they lose 10 kilos, they're going to lose 15 millimeters of blood pressure or maybe more. And so it's a terrific, it gives an achievable target because, yeah. you know, this is about concordance with therapy for an individual who's going to be on treatment lifelong. And so whatever that can be done to achieve blood pressure lowering without drugs is a great thing. And so weight loss is crucial. Uh, salt is always in the news and people always, there are zealots and there are moderates 
Uh, some people would say that there should be no salt ever added to food, ever. But of course, salt's an important uh, addition for preservative of food and has been for centuries. So we can't ignore salt. But adding salt tends to drive blood pressure. Salt does equate with blood pressure. Interestingly, I was in the ward round on Monday and the patient was showing me some salt in his hand. He said, I just saw on television that I'm allowed three to five grams of salt per day. Wow. <laughs> and so he showed me his handful of salt. But I then pointed out, Unfortunately, that includes the salt that's already in all the food and the bread. And so that, that message was, was in fact messed up yeah. by television in that this was his impression that he could add that much salt. In fact, what the targets, all, all the targets are the same across the, the different guidelines that about three to five grams, which includes all the salt, which that's basically a diet of no added salt. That's what I tell individuals. I'm not an absolute zealot. And there are various papers that we publish one ourselves on this in the European Heart Journal, um, saying that uh, moderation is enough without being a zealot. So I think the salt's important. What also works with salt, of course, are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, because if you're in a high salt diet with a lot of non-steroidals, then you retain salt. Um, famously, one of the cardiologists who's in England, and he told me uh, that when he was a medical student, they used to take non-steroidals when they were going out for a bender, because they would pee less, <laughs> in words. <laughs> um, and so you know, what's reduce your urine output, then take an non-steroidal and retain some salt, but it certainly puts blood pressure up. And interestingly, sometimes they use that for people with low blood pressure. Yeah. See them as well. And actually, occasionally, you can use an non-steroidal to uh, get them to retain salt. Dodging the long term, I think, because, you know, long term non-steroidals are going to give you renal impairment anyway. So I would prefer to give those individuals a high salt diet. Yeah. yeah, people yeah, yeah. With low blood pressure, buckets of salt. People with high blood pressure, no added salt. So that's my feeling for salt. Fantastic. James, alcohol, yeah, alcohol, particularly binges, puts your blood pressure higher. Mm. Uh, and so we should moderate alcohol. Again, the zealots would have us drink none. The moderates would have us drink a little bit. And there's, uh, you see the, the units, they're on all the guidelines. Uh, NICE has now equated men and women, although to me, it's the only thing that men are stronger at than women is drinking. Otherwise, men are weaker in everything except booze. Because men's livers are a bit larger, so men could probably get away with slightly more alcohol than women. But that's an aside, and that's <laughs> paper. And let's um, let's start off then by having a look at the. You've explained the rationale for some of the differences between the guidelines, but yep. in terms of the diagnosis threshold, I think you've already covered that. Uh, all all guidelines are also slightly different on the target blood pressure you should aim for with therapy. Can you talk a bit about that? That's right, James. Yeah, and James, that's really the, the key point because I think when a new guideline comes out, everybody looks to see what's the new target. Is there a change? Of course, there hasn't been any big blood pressure trial since the uh, SPRINT trial. What there have been, for example, for Kazem uh, Rahini's work from Oxford, are fantastic database analyses using mm. hundreds of thousands of individual patient data. And what Kazem has shown is this straight line relationship right down to about 110 millimeters of mercury. But the more you lower blood pressure, the greater the reduction in events, a bit like cholesterol, which is a yeah. straight risk. LDL cholesterol is the same idea, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly the same thing. And uh, these meta-analyses are not used by NICE in their production new guideline because they're not randomized trials. And so, again, I think that's that's an important thing for the future that we should start to incorporate these quite far-reaching implications. For example, uh, you can do this with dementia. It, it was done by the UK Whitehall studies and by the Framium uh, studies that blood pressure in middle years, 50, 60, 70, is quite strongly linked to dementia later in life. And that, to me, is a reason to go more aggressively 
earlier in life, yeah, which yeah. the AHA and the European guidelines are doing, but not in Europe, because the target, come back James, to your point, the NICE sets uh, an achievable blood pressure or an achieved blood pressure less than 140 as suitable, which is reasonable enough. And we did that for many years, but really from about 2016, 2018 onwards, we've in Europe and in the USA, the target has been 130, 80, because of the SPRINT trial, which showed these substantial additional benefits of tighter blood pressure lowering. And in my own mind, um, the uh, effects on dementia. So we don't know that yet. There's, no, there's not really randomized data, but it's quite persuasive. And dementia was the biggest cause of death in the UK. And if we could take steps to reduce that or even postpone it till even later in life, that would be worth taking. So yeah, so that's the difference is that nice targets, 14090 and um ESC and AHA target 13080. And uh, I also noticed that nice suggest ambulatory blood pressure monitoring should be done before starting therapy for certain brackets of blood pressure whereas the others just jump straight in. Um that's right. anything and, and that, to say on that aspect? Yeah, and it's the access to ambulatory blood pressure monitoring while it is the gold standard and in a way when you write a guideline you should write what is the best science and then you worry about the costs later of course because they're always a bit of a balance and the best way to diagnose blood pressure is if, if an individual is on the border say like blood pressure 140 150 you're not sure is to do a 24-hour monitor but that's quite costly for example in glasgow we don't offer routine open access to general practice because we haven't got the facilities to do that right. gps can um buy the equipment themselves and finally if in ireland where ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is reimbursed by the, the structures for funding general practice. In Ireland, ambulatory monitoring is used a great deal. Okay. In Europe and the USA, it's used, again, for borderline cases where you're defining, is an individual hypertensive or not? And so although NICE encourages it, the actual uptake is much less than, than the guideline says. Then this brings us on to home blood pressure monitoring. And Home monitors are widely available. There are many manufacturers. You can get a decent one for about £25. And if it's not a gold standard, it's quite a close silver standard. And so NICE does mention that, as do the other guidelines, that this is an additional and an increasing way for individuals to present themselves with high blood pressure. And I think we will take cognizance of that. So to me, if I have some home recordings on an individual and they show the randomness that you would expect from a, a true data, that's enough, and I won't use a 24 blood pressure monitor. I think, James, the other thing we need to think about is that uh, I did some work with uh, a company being bought by Apple because blood pressure determination from a mobile phone camera, that's not far away now. Mm, yeah. And um, we'll soon be deluged with patients coming to us with their mobile phones showing all kinds of blood pressure data with heart rate variability that none of us know anything about. Yeah. And uh, th this is coming our way like an avalanche of high blood pressure data. So we have to be ready for that. And the, I think the next nice guideline will need to address this head on. Is that what are we going to do with patient defined data from wearable technology? Right, exactly. There's going to have to be some quality control. And, um, you know, as, as you say, a scary amount of data. Maybe AI can help us to pass all that and, and uh, you know, derive some useful insights from it. But yeah, I think so. Yeah, hopefully. Can we move on to talking about the recommendations for for drug therapy um, and where the differences are between the guidelines in terms of single agents versus starting more than one at once and the choice of agents? Do you want to talk briefly about that? Yes, I think that's a very important point because really since about 2004, the UK really led the world in 
defining what drugs are probably best for which individuals with different levels of blood pressure. This has done studies from Morris Brown and Anna Dominicek in Cambridge and Glasgow, looking at renin aldosterone levels in relation to hypertension in untreated individuals and to age and to ethnic um, divisions, if you like, or ethnic, ethnic groupings. And so what you see is that individuals under the age of 55, Caucasians, tend to have high renin hypertension. So renin from the JGA in the kidney tends to drive blood pressure. Therefore, for those young individuals, drugs which affect the renin angiotensin system, which is principally ACE inhibitors, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, and ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, are really first-line therapy. And then you build from that with individuals with low renin hypertension, which are usually older individuals, over 55, say, um, or, or Black or Afro-Caribbean. Um, I'm not sure if that's the exact uh, description, if I've got the right wording for that, for the current terminology, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who have uh, low renin hypertension. And we checked this. We have a lot of Nigerian patients in Glasgow, and they always have low renin hypertension. So for those individuals... Drugs that block renal angiotensin are less effective. And finally, for, for uh, black individuals or Afro-Caribbeans, there's a much higher incidence of urticaria with ACE inhibitors, probably due to the high level of kinins okay. that are uh, precipitated by blocking the ACE enzyme. And so if I'm treating somebody from Nigeria, right, I'll start with a calcium channel blocker, maybe a, plus a thiazide, but I won't use an ACE inhibitor because of the risks of urticaria. If I need to add uh, something for the renin angiotensin system, I'll use an ARB because then you're safe. And so that's an important point, I think, which isn't driven home enough in, in really any of the guidelines. But so that's it. And so in UK, so we've had this sort of level of around 55 patients with high renin hypertension get an ACE and ARB, and patients with low renin hypertension who are older you know, start with a calcium channel blocker or a thiazide-like diuretic. It says thiazide-like because the, the data is principally with chlorothaladone and with indapamide. Although I think the truth is, is that thiazide is used far more, likewise hydrochlorothiazide, and they're basically probably just as good. Yeah. Just those are the trials we've done. The USA doesn't specify. They basically would say it with any drug. Okay. Europeans kind of go with... Um, rather like the NICE guidance for uh, ACEs, ARBs for younger people. But what all the guidelines emphasize is that most people will need more than one drug. And the idea of one drug sufficient for to control blood pressure in an individual is that that's old fashioned. But if we go back 25 years, we used to go from one drug to another and try to control blood pressure. And that shows how wrong we were. Now it's more like cooking. You put one drug in, if that's not you, you add a second on top, and it's that blending of drugs. And I think that's where the nice guidance has real strength. For example, if, we, if you start, say a young individual, you start with an ARB, start with Losartan, Candesartan. You then add, say, amlodipine to that. You then add a thiazide to that. So that individual might end up on, say, Losartan, amlodipine, uh, benfumothiazide. And that's a sort of triple therapy of A plus C plus D. Yeah. And I think that really simplifies blood pressure. That's the, I think that's the great strength of the NICE guidance as it makes prescribing straightforward. And that's what the vast majority of people that are going to use the guidance want. They want to see, how do I do it? Where's the target? Can I get to it? And three drugs will get many people to target. And when should general cardiologists, do we say, or general practitioners be referring to hypertension specialists? Yeah, and that's and there are differences between health boards for that. Currently in Glasgow, we set a level of about age forty 
And so for individuals under age 40, they will get a full uh, panoply of tests that will include renal aldosterone determination, we'll look at meta, uh, catecholamines, we'll look at the renal artery. Because what we do a lot of and have done for many years is renal artery imaging. Yeah. Use MRI angiography. Uh, ultrasound is not very good. We don't use CT as much. Because we quite pick up quite a lot of renal artery stenosis. Yeah. And uh, we've just published our last 20 years experience of uh, renal artery angioplasty. And uh, we forget how good angioplasty is in the renal arteries if there's, for example, fibromuscular dysplasia in younger people or atheromatous disease in older people. And what's very useful uh, blood test for this is the renin level. And if renin's high, that points to something driving the kid to make it high, and that can be renal artery stenosis. So I think we mustn't overlook renal artery angioplasty in the investigations for that. Now, the, the commonest onset hypertension is sort of mid-50s. And so if somebody presents 55, 60 with emerging high blood pressure, we wouldn't do the full test with renal artery uh, imaging and so on. Might do renin angiotensin, because, partly because we like a big database of that. Urinary protein is incredibly important because if somebody with albuminuria or urinary protein, proteinuria, that means that those filtering beds in the glomeruli are under pressure. And also give something that you can monitor, and that should, you would aim to try and get rid of the proteinuria over about six months as you treat blood pressure and the kidneys get back towards their more normal state. Other tests that are done, we look for Cushing disease, uh, look at thyroid function, but I think uh, renal aldos are very important in younger people. And um, the other th thing to think about is that in UNEs, if they've got low potassium, there's a lot of hyperaldosteronism that's missed. And a pointer to that is often the potassium is normal or it's a little bit low, or you put them in the thyroid and it becomes very low. And that often points to, to an aldosterone drive. Yeah. And so we, particularly those people, when you're doing MRI imaging, you look at the adrenals as well. Uh, often you may not see anything because hyperaldosteronism is most commonly caused by a microadenoma that you can't really identify. But those individuals do very well with spironolactone therapy. And so that's an important group to look forward. So that's highlighted, certainly in the, in the NICE guideline. And I should say there's a lovely table one in your paper, which... Uh, displays the guidelines from all three of the uh, societies that we're talking about in terms of starting blood pressure targets, uh, medication choices, all that kind of stuff, which is uh, beautifully summarized, I have to say. Yes, um, I have to thank Fraser Goldie, one of our excellent registrars, uh, one of our research fellows for producing that table for, for the journal. So Fraser, well done. Yeah, it's, it's really, uh, it's very clear to a, a non-expert like me who doesn't treat hypertension every day. Um, just in terms of um, other ongoing trials that listeners might be interested to hear about, Adrian, um, and what are the sort of missing pieces of data? You've alluded to a few of them, but are, are there any big trials that you're aware of that people should look out for the results of? There aren't uh, any very major trials right now, Philip, unless there's ones that I'm not aware of. The trials of some new drugs, there's this new exciting um, mm. injectable blocker uh, for ARBs, which is uh, seems to work for six months. Now, whether that benefit is sustained in the long term and it has supportive data from clinical endpoints, that's still to be determined. Because I think the thing about hypertension is we have a lot of data. And for, if you're a drug company to market a new drug up yeah. against a vast number of generic drugs, which are cost next to nothing and are very effective, it's a difficult market to get entry. 
And so there's been a lot of interest in physical therapy and renal denervation. That's a big topic, certainly at cardiology conferences. And yeah. um, I've already mentioned renal angioplasty. Uh, so denervation is always in the news. Now, the, the evidence is that it does lower blood pressure, about as much as one or two drugs, maybe. Uh, we published our, our own experience about 10 years ago now was when we last published our data on renal denervation. And like many treatments, what you see are the responders and non-responders. So the papers show you the mean effects what, of course, you see in real life is some people do spectacularly well with renal artery denervation, and in others, it makes no difference. And it's almost impossible to tell in advance what's going to happen. So there will be more data coming out um, from current trials on renal artery denervation. It's now gaining licenses and a bit of traction, certainly in Europe, somewhat in the USA, and a bit in the UK now. It's very special centres driven by really by enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a period a few years off doing it, and then we're now, we're now restarting. And so I think there's sort of physical therapies. There, there have been other things like rather exotic things like carotid body stimulation. Uh, there was another one of uh, shunting the femoral artery, the femoral vein, but uh, I think that gives you high cardiac failure over a year. So that's been kind of dropped. But I think the ones of the, of the actual interventional ones, the uh, denervation is certainly going to uh, be here. I think patients like it because it means they think it's uh, a way of avoiding drugs. Um, I think the truth of renal denervation is that the sympathetic nerves, which are the ones that you're trying to basically fry with your ablation catheter, they probably grow back over a few years. Okay. So um, the long-term benefits, I think, are, are a bit so-so. I'm not sure that, that we'll see them having benefits over 10 years. So that's still to be determined. The other area, James, that, that we've got no data yeah. is for people older than aged 87. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk about that a bit more? Because I think you mentioned that in the paper as a sort of absence of evidence area that we should uh, think about a bit more. Yeah. The HIBIT trial, which was the high potential in the very early, brilliant trial driven from the Hammersmith, uh, published maybe nearly 20 years ago now, that defined treatment up to the age of 87. That was the age of the end of the trial. That showed that blood pressure lowering, they used uh, used Prindipril and Dapamide, made big, big effects. Yeah. Beyond that, we don't know. Now, in the UK, there are about I think about 100,000 people in the 90s and above or more than that. So it's similar to the number of people with rheumatoid arthritis, and for which we've got lots of guidelines, uh, or multiple sclerosis, lots of guidelines, and they're terrific. But for this very large group, NICE doesn't say anything. Now, they, neither do the other ones. They say a little bit that um, you have to sort of hope for the best and do your best. Now, I think, this is my own view, that if you're writing a guideline, Guidelines are for people that don't know the subject. They're not for experts. They're for people that look at the guidance to, to help them make a judgment. And everybody's at lots of patients in the late 80s and 90s nowadays. And so, we, so even in the absence of data, I think we should offer some suggestions or recommendation about what we should do. And so I think that will develop. There are no big trials running yet. I've been planning one called stroll, systolic treatment reduction to lower levels or not. That's not funded or started yet, but this is where we need data is in the older old, because there is emerging data, particularly from, from, from nursing homes, that people with the highest blood pressures live the longest. Now that's a telling piece of data. My view is that we shouldn't go hard beyond the age of 88. Other people have completely opposite views and nobody knows. Yeah. So there is an absolute area for trial. And people, I do come across patients and other doctors who are worried, of course, about side effects and people falling over and breaking their hip. That's absolutely right, James. And you give some, and the blood pressure may be stable when they're age 90 on on. 
a combination of drugs. If they get a UTI or a chest infection, their blood pressure plummets, the renal uh, perfusion goes down, the tablets become incredibly strong, their blood pressure drops to 70 over zero, and they fall and break their hip or break their neck. Right, right. So it's not just blood pressure lowering it, it's far more what happens to them as a whole individual. Yeah. That's really the key area that by which we know very little. And my view is that we should go less hard in older people. I think that's the view of many. And so whether that's written to the next guidelines, we'll wait to see because we're not going to get data quickly, yeah. but that population is growing exponentially. Anything else you'd like to share, uh, Prof, just before we wrap up here? Anywhere no, people think, can find out more uh, or get involved yeah. in writing guidelines? I know you've you've, you've written that you, you greatly enjoy that side of your, that side of your career. You're obviously a, a world expert in this area. I think guidelines offer a chance for individuals to help on a, on a broad scale. You know, we do trials that, that, that uh, may be projected for, for a large number, but guideline writing, is, it's crucial. It takes time. Mm. There's a lot of data to be examined. But for example, take NICE in the UK. NICE often want volunteers to help in all kinds of guidance. And so for cardiologists and other physicians and other practitioners, don't need to be medical practitioners. It's a chance to be involved. And so NICE always welcomes approaches from individuals saying, I'd like to help with the diabetes guideline or the asthma guideline or the whatever dose of it. Cardiology, we've got plenty of things and there's always new stuff coming. So I would warmly recommend people to become involved. There's a chance to help to influence the broader therapy for the wider community. Fantastic. Well, I'd just like to wrap up by thanking you so much for your time and joining me today. If the paper isn't already open access, I'll certainly make it open access for a few weeks after the podcast comes out. I suspect it probably is, actually. Um, And once again, thanks so much. James, thank you very much.